Welcome to the Old Galway Diary Podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Hey. Tom, we're in the middle of a heat wave, and I believe Barna is having similar weather as we are way off in Galway. It's absolutely magnificent. Well, they actually closed the road to the beach here uh, <laughs> no. at, at the weekend. Oh, my goodness, no. I what? think they couldn't let any more people down to the yeah. beach. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was very interesting, actually. I don't know where the cars park, actually. There is a Well, that's the problem. It's ca- parking, and they park everywhere, and they block yeah. and. Uh, an ambulance trying to get down to Silver Strand now would be a, a nightmare. A nightmare, yeah. yeah. It's actually a beautiful beach, isn't it? It's a very nice beach, yes. very yes. safe beach for children, uh, you know, but it's just a very nice feel to it. It's very contained. I like Silver Strand very, very. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And the cliff keeps crumbling away eventually. It does. <laughs> I'm sure it's. <laughs> Every time I look at it, there's another at chunk. Least than it was when we were yeah. growing up. <laughs> Has slipped off. Yeah. I, I, we used to be able to walk up that cliff and lovely sea breeze at the top of the cliff, but I think they've stopped people walking up there now because it's slowly crumbling. That is, yeah, it's yeah. quite dangerous, I you think. Yeah. 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 Well, on that happy note, Tom, how are we this week? What have you got for us? Uh, well, I am, I have been writing about schools, it seems to me, for the last couple of <laughs> yeah, weeks between. Yeah. The Bish and the Model School, and this week it is about the jazz. Okay, I will uh, give them a chance. Well, the reason <laughs> is that there is a group of them about to have in 10 days' time uh, a major class reunion. And uh, so that's what put it into my head. Uh, it's 160 years ago exactly since the jazz, since the St. Ignatius College yes. on Sea Road opened their doors for the first time. They also opened uh, a community residence and the church at the same time. Right. Now, when you think of it, to build those three buildings yeah. uh, was a very ambitious and visionary thing to do in yeah. that kind of post-famine period. You know, yeah. Yeah. It, gener- it took courage to <laughs> do, I, I think. Anyway, it was a great success, really, initially moving, uh, particularly with the church. There was huge attendances at the Mass and at the various ceremonies and apparently sometimes confessions would last until midnight so oh there goodness. must have been a major a lot of siddlers around that area maybe <laughs> Got him. Uh, but the school was a different thing that that took off but it was a very slow kind of a challenging uh thing really the numbers were much as what they expected initially uh there were about 90 people there in uh, a few years after they opened, and it actually got to 110. <clears throat> That's in the entire school in 1874. But the numbers began to drop slowly, and they were up and down a little bit, uh, but they were never very high. Uh, but in, in like they improved a little bit at the beginning of the last century, but the 20s <clears throat> between, you know, 
social and economic problem, political problems as well, I suppose. Uh, the there was a decline in the numbers, and in 1924 there were only 67 boys in the school. So two years later they decided to close, but this prompted a lot of representations from all kinds of organizations, from parents, from citizens, that the college was required and needed, etc. And the Jesuits gave in and they reopened the school in right, 1929. Right. Uh, actually, my father was one of those uh, pu first pupils that came back in 1929. But there had now been a subtle change. <clears throat> there were a new brand of teacher and indeed of Jesuit there as well now. In the wake of independence, there was a swing towards Irish culture and indeed uh, the Irish language. Language, uh, yes. The whole Ang language revival thing was still yeah. going on. So now they called the school Kalosh the Ignorance. Yeah. And in 1931, it became an all Irish medium, Irish medium. Everything was taught through Irish, an A school, as they called it. And they, you know, they kept, all, and they always did, in fairness, in my time, the, thinking of ways of promoting and learning and, and creating kind of love of Irish, really. I can't say it always succeeded, <laughs> but they certainly tried. They didn't try to beat it into you, you know. Uh, it's also interesting, uh, thinking about this, at least two of my teachers were involved in 1916, which I hadn't realized. Oh, my God. Uh, Patrick Mallon and uh, a man called Waldron, who lived at the bottom of Taylor's Hill, yeah. who was interned in Frangach. And so I suppose this kind of Republican thing would have added to the, yes. the kind of change of culture, if you like, within the school. Anyway, it began to grow slowly. The numbers were still very small. In 1959, they built uh, a science laboratory. In 1969, there was a very major extension built known as the Griffin Building. This is the one behind the church now. Uh, and in 1971, they decided that they needed a new primary school. <clears throat> the primary and secondary were all within the one building in my time. Uh, but they built a new school called Skull Ignite in at the back on the other side of Rally Row. Indeed, they did. <clears throat> yeah. And the numbers were now really beginning to change. In 1961, in my Leaving Cert class, we were 10 scholars, 10 of us. Uh, the photographs that I have in the paper uh, this week are of the 1982. And there are about 60 people in the Leaving Cert class. In fact, <laughs> it was so large that it was divided into three streams. Uh, and, you know, it's a measure of the success of the Definitely. school. Like, the numbers might have been low in the bad years, but the yeah. academic standards were very high. And that was very important. And also, the jazz was always seen to give you a kind of a broader education. There was more cultural aspects to it than there might have been in other secondary schools for boys. And uh, I, I certainly know some of my colleagues who went to the Bish or Mary's were jealous of the kind of subjects that we were doing and some of the activities that we had in the... Now, I'm not trying to tell you that it's the most wonderful school in the whole world. But <laughs> well, you're doing a good job there now, Tom. It was certainly, thank <laughs> you, certainly popular and growing. And 
It continued to be extended, you know, in 1982, they added on more buildings. In 84, there was a very, very major change. <clears throat> it became the first fully co-educational secondary school in Galway. That's good. That the idea good. of girls coming through the gate would have been shocking to us, really. Mm. In fact, the idea of a female teacher in my time in the school would have been a shock to all of our systems, really. But, you know, it was uh, it was indicative of change, indicative of the popularity. There's a big waiting list for the jazz now, uh, whether you're talking about the senior or indeed the junior schools. <clears throat> and then there's always this discussion about the Jesuit ethos, and which is, it's something there, it's kind of indefinable. And I remember our class, we had a 50th anniversary reunion, which I recommend to anybody in any school. It doesn't matter. The reunion was an absolutely source of great fun and huge nostalgia. <laughs> As we met, you know, you're yeah. looking at somebody coming in the door and you're thinking to yourself, if there was hair on his head now, who, who was he? Kind of thing, you know? Uh, uh, you knew and, him, but he people, didn't have any hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People coming in saying, you know, I wonder if he recognized me at all. And <laughs> but the moment that we met, we were back up those stairs and into that small yeah, yeah, classroom. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And the other thing <clears throat> that I found interesting was the sometimes the guy who mightn't have been the most popular in the school, was certainly the most popular at the reunion. So it was, anyway, this class are getting together, but, but I'm getting away from the Jesuit ethos. In our reunion of 50 years, we had, there was a long debate quite late at night about the Jesuit ethos and what made it different. And finally, it was Jim Craddock who said, he, he kind of finished topped the conversation. He's, he described that school as the place where they taught us confidence, competence, and compassion. And that stopped us all in our tracks. And that is exactly how I will always remember the jazz. And so I have three photographs okay. here of the three various streams. In There was an Irish language stream known as the Gaelga or the G stream. There was one called X, which is Xavier, and there was one called El Loyola. And there are about 60 of them in it, and uh, it's wonderful. So I hope they are meeting, not this coming weekend, but the weekend of next, the following week. And I just hope they have a wonderful reunion and that will reestablish a lot of old friendships for them. I bet it will, and it's a lovely idea. You're right yeah, about reunions. They are great, Tom. Everybody remembers every, everything and the, the laughter is great and the shared jokes and do you remember when and all that. It's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I, I've attended. We, uh, yes. Yeah. There was a conversation started at the dinner table about a particular match that we played. And it was weird. <laughs> Everybody joined in and it was almost like a running commentary on the whole game. It was it was quite amazing. Uh, but everybody and we all had different memories yeah, of it as well. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it was very special. I'm conscious, though, a lot of these schools were single sex schools at the time. And I do uh, embrace the Jesuits for going co-educational. I know that was fairly recent, but I really believe 
sincerely that the way forward really is co-educational. I think it's a good idea that young men and young women are educated together. I think that they learn about each other, they learn respect for each other. Now, I've been shown statistics that show me that, yes, well, girls in a single-sex school do better than girls in a mixed school. And my answer to that is, you know, there's far more to education than grades, Tom. And, oh, hey, hey. and I really feel we've had some awful examples in recent years of boys behaving badly. Uh, and I do feel if they were educated together with a good mix of women and male staff and, you know, good, good social content in the lessons, talks and uh, assemblies, I think it would be a great thing for, for, for us all. And I would support that very much. And I applaud yeah. the Jesuits for doing that. That was a very ambitious thing to do. And, it was. Uh, and it's uh, almost 40 years ago. You know? Oh, yeah. oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, that was excellent. <laughs> that was excellent. And I'm surprised at the other schools that they haven't followed suit because the schools have been kind of amalgamating. Having schools in the center of the town is a bad idea now because of traffic and things like that. And we talked before about the Bish moving out way up, way up the river. Um, The other schools could do the same. I think, you know, they could somehow rebrand themselves and hopefully become a mixed school. That's just my opinion. I just my opinion. Yeah, I feel strong about it. Yeah. yeah. So I take so, my hand off. Yeah, to the jazz. What is in the diary this week? Well, <laughs> well, I'm still on about this extraordinary revolution in rural Ireland uh, at the beginning of the last century. And uh, I can't let it go because it's just fascinating. And there's piles of stuff. And people are saying, you must read this now. You should read this. And of course, (laughs) like all these stories, it's not just black and white. There's a big gray area. Not all landlords were bad. Some were very good. But land hunger was so strong and so understandable that it was almost impossible to hold back the desire for land that existed. So... I talked about the First World War last week, and after that war, the remnants of the Anglo-Irish landlord class found themselves marooned, Tom, in a new, more democratic social world, which some of them, of course, resented as plutocratic and vulgar. (laughs) because some of them were just like that. Now, before the 1916 rising, there'd been a remarkable revolution in rural Ireland, just to remind us again of that, taking full advantage of generous borrowing schemes made available through a series of land reforms, and they were amazing. Former tenants bought out their tenancies and most sought more land to buy. And this was the first time, Tom, in centuries that the native Catholic Irish owned 75% of the land, some of which had been given to Cromwellian soldiers in, in lieu of payment. So the understandable desire for more land brought pressure to bear on landlords who either refused to sell or who endeavored to hold on. After centuries of being landless, land-hungry former tenants targeted neighbours and landlords through boycotting and violence, and in many cases, burning them out. Now, burnings escalated during the War of Independence. Many of the big families who were Protestant and Unionist were seen as a threat to the revolution. 
But during the civil war, when most of the house burnings took place, it included the houses of some Roman Catholic unionists, suspected informers and supporters of the new Irish free state. Of course, ultimately, Tom, it was a land grab. If the landlord family was gone and his house destroyed, his land would be offered for sale. But at least 275 big houses were deliberately burnt down or destroyed in this period. Now, although some of them have been restored, many remain in ruins, reminding us of a bitter time as the new Ireland emerged from a a divisive and murderous past. So I want to talk about one particular family, the Dillon family of Clonbrock. Now, as a result of all that, many landlords sold up and left the country. Those that remained did so because Ireland was their home, the only home that they knew. Many still professed allegiance to Great Britain, even though that country had washed its hands of the Irish landlord. The Dillon family of Clonbrock, an estate of some 28,000 acres with a Norman tower and a magnificent house, was among the first of the Anglo-Norman families to settle in Connacht in, wait for it, 1185. The family was descended from Henry de Leon, who came to Ireland with the Earl of Morton, later King of England. Now, they they were Roman Catholic, but due to the vicissitudes of history, became and remained members of the Church of Ireland. The family has been described as one of the more considerate landlords during the Great Famine. Their reputation did much now to maintain the good landlord-tenant relationships on the estate right up to the early 20th century. Now, at this time of great change, Luke Gerald Dillon, the fourth Baron Clonbrook, and his wife, Lady Augusta, daughter of Lord Crofton of Moat Park, Roscommon, ruled over a prosperous estate which had been divided into a hundred acre farms. It employed 70 laborers and Clonbrock supported his tenants by giving them up-to-date farm machinery, bringing in specialists to advise on best agricultural methods and promoted a linen industry. The family enjoyed photography and you've probably seen their photographs, Tom. Oh yes. Aspects of life of the Clonbrock estate has been preserved and it's, it's a pleasure to look at them. Now, during the land war, Clonbrock was largely at peace. Not so their neighbours. A particularly violent sectarian attack took place against the Purses at Roxburgh and Castle Boy in South Galway. The Purses, Lady Gregory's family, had previously brought down a group of Ulster Protestants to help them run their large estate. The men and their families were accommodated in nearby Kilcreast. One night, they were surrounded by so-called ribbon men, an agrarian secret and anti-Protestant society who were active in the area. The Ulstermen were rounded up, God help us, and made swear on their knees, and this is the 12th of July, Tom, made swear on their knees that they would attend mass or have their houses burnt. The rector's house at Ballymac Ward was attacked and destroyed, and all this made the local RIC nervous and jittery. And for some reason, a constable fired into the Catholic church at a Haskra, killing one person. Now, Clonbrock himself was vehemently complained to Dublin Castle at this outrageous behaviour. Now, as I've said, during World War I, when so many of the Anglo-Irish landlord class joined up to fight Britain, the Clonbrocks made no secret of where their loyalties lay. Augusta, uh, in her 70s, when the war broke out, gathered like-minded women around her in Galway, 
and worked tirelessly on behalf of prisoners of war, raising funds and organizing parcels or comforts for the men of the Connors Rangers. Clearly sensing the changing political mood as Irish nationalists became more vocal and organized, she founded the Women's Unionist Alliance in the belief that, quote, if ever Ireland separated from England, then from that moment her downfall commenced. Dear, oh dear. Lord Clonbrock spoke against the Home Rule Bill in the House of Lords, which he rarely attended. He, he rarely actually left his estate. He was very happy there. But anyway, he did speak against the Home Rule Bill. He claimed that it was his birthright, and I have a quote here, to remain under the protection and control of the Imperial Parliament. <laughs> However, his loyalty for the old way of life meant nothing to his tenants. When the 1903 Land Act guaranteed that the purchase annuities repayable to the government would be less than the annual rents payable to the landlord, their days were numbered. Clanbrock decided to sell part of his land, but his tenants demanded he sell all 28,000 acres. Clanbrock refused. The estate was subject to extreme agitation, backed by the United Irish League. Demands for rent reductions were accompanied by frequent cattle drives as smallholders and the landless demanded the breakup of the large grazing farms on his estate, the principal source of Clonbrock's income. By 1909, Clonbrock had no alternative but to sell. Now, Clonbrock made actually a lot of money from his sale. He received £250,000, which equals roughly to £15 million in today's money. So life at the Clonbrock continued in relative splendour. The money was investigated globally in stocks and shares from Argentina to Australia, from Canada to South Africa, from Britain to Russia. And having shared the myriad of expenses that had been part and parcel of the annual running of the estate, the family was probably better off than it had been in generations, much to their surprise. In 1917, the fourth Baron Luke Dillon died and was succeeded by his only son, Robert, who died eight years later unmarried. The title became extinct. All this coincided with the Russian Revolution and later the Wall Street crash, which pretty well wiped out the Clonbrock family fortune. After 1929, the house was emptied of its servants and was occupied by Ethel Dillon until it passed to her grand-nephew, Sir Luke Dillon Mahan, who sold what remained of the estate in the mid-1970s. Unfortunately, Tom, unfortunately, the grand house was accidentally destroyed by fire in 1994. Yeah. And it was a grand house, yeah. Yeah, I'll come back to Luke Dillon Mahan in a moment, <laughs> a man much admired in this town. Anyway... Mm -hmm. This was an interesting thing that I couldn't resist. The post W.B. Yeats, a Protestant of Anglo-Irish descent, I'm very proud of that, was appointed to Shannadair in 1922. Cosgrove's government agreed to use his appointments, to, the, to use the Taoiseach's appointments to grant extra representation to the state's Protestant minority. The appointment of Yeats was considered a well-earned tribute to his outstanding career as a poet. He was not expected to make a serious contribution, Tom. He rather charmingly had written a poem among schoolchildren, placing himself as the 60-year-old smiling public man. <laughs> 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 but in the summer of 1925, 
the new constitution was being debated. Now, it was a document that in many places, as you know, reflected conservative Catholicism. Yeah. A debate and divorce arose. Yeats viewed the issue as primarily a confrontation between the Catholic viewpoint, which forbade divorce, and the Protestant viewpoint, where it was allowed. When the Catholic Church weighed into the debate with blanket refusal to consider the Protestant position, the Irish Times countered that a measure to outlaw divorce would alienate Protestants and crystallise partition in Ireland. Yeats rose up to his full height and he added, he delivered a, he, he delivered a series of speeches, Tom, that attacked the quinzotically impressive ambitions of the government and clergy, likening their campaign tactics to those of medieval Spain. Marriage, he quotes, and I quote him here, marriage is not for us, to us Protestants, a sacrament, but upon the other hand, the love of a man and a woman and the inseparably physical desire are sacred. This conviction has come to us through ancient philosophy and modern literature. And it says to us a most sacrilegious thing to persuade two people who hate each other to live together. And it is for us no remedy to permit them to part if neither of them can remarry. Now, his language became even more forceful. There was a Jesuit priest uh, who was publishing letters uh, absolutely uh, stoling the, the con constitution that would forbid divorce, a Father Peter Finley, a, a Jesuit, Tom, to, to, to take up your challenge there. Yes. He had proclaimed that sooty, where a Hindu widow throws herself onto a funeral pyre of her husband, was a more defensive practice than a divorce. Yeats described Finley as a man of monstrous discourtesy, and he lamented that, quote, it is one of the glories of the church in which I was born that we put our bishops in their place in discussions requiring legislation. Yeats further warned, quote, if you show that this country, Southern Ireland, is going to be governed by the Roman Catholic ideas and by Catholic ideas alone, you will never get the North you will put a wedge in the middle of this nation. Now he re really got going, uh, speaking on behalf of his fellow Protestants. Yeats thought the divorce issue was a very serious matter. Another quote, Tom. I think it is tragic that within three years of this country gaining its independence, we should be discussing a measure which a minority of this nation considers it to be grossly oppressive. I am proud to consider myself a typical man of that minority. We, against whom you have done this thing, are no petty people. We are one of the great stocks of Europe. We are the people of Burke. We are the people of Grattan. We are the people of Swift, the people of Emmett, the people of Parnell. We have created the most of the modern literature of this country. We have created the best of its political intelligence. And there he ended. But there was a general feeling, Tom, a general feeling that although the Constitution retained its Catholic bias, Yeats had won the day.
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Grace wasn't it? Great stuff. We are no mean people. Either that the was most articulate. Yes. Oh well, no, no better man. So yeah, you know the the smiling public man was kind of put in there just as a kind of a little, you know, gr gratitude and recognition of his poetic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He was a master of words. A master of words. Of course he was. Of course. I got yeah, it. He yeah, said yeah. I mentioned Luke Dillon, man. Uh, was the last really of them. Now he was a very much respected and well-liked man in Galway. You would have known of him, Tom. He was very a, found, well, a founding director of the Galway Samaritans, established yes. at number two St. Brendan's Avenue, a refuge and a listening voice to many since May 1976. And uh, I remember Luke with great admiration and um, great yes. likeness, uh, an absolutely wonderful man, deeply sincere, um, really, he was a very nice painter. But Tom, I was just going to say that he was an artist. He really yeah, was. He was, he was. Yeah, yeah. He Luke was uh, a very modest man. Really, he, he didn't really put much value on his own work, but it was very good, very accomplished. Uh, uh, all landscape. That's what he painted, really, and uh, and he loved doing it as well. And that indeed showed in his paintings. It showed. On the in the canvases, I remember going to the house and getting this enormous shock at the number of paintings that were there. But I think uh, I see he probably gave a lot of them away, donated them to charity, different kinds of organisations, maybe to sell, make money, that kind of thing. Uh, but that was the generosity of the man as well. Absolutely, that's a lovely tribute, Tom. Yes, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember at the launch of the um, Samaritans in Galway, it was down in the tourist office there in Victoria Place, and um, it was a very powerful meeting, and he spoke with great passion about the need for people who were suffering domestic abuse. Now, we didn't have the words for this, Tom. No, we you know, didn't. No, we were learning. Right. This was before all these scandals came out. And he he named them all. And uh, afterwards, he asked me, did I get that? Because I was a journalist there. And I said, yes. No, he said, Ronnie, I want you to use all those words that I said. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, I will. No, no, he said, please, it's very important because we have to reach out to people, The you know, through the, the secrecy of the home, through the secrecy of institutions, through the secrecy of, you know, people hiding, hiding the truth, hiding their suffering. And he was very, very passionate. And it was just so moving. People were silent by what he had to say. I will always oh, yeah. remember that gathering. So he was yeah, an outstanding yeah. man. He was. He was indeed. Yeah. His, pro his provenance goes right back to... Yes, the, a thousand years. It goes I right believe back it. to the 12th well, century. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, now, I, I, he had a lovely wife, Audrey. I'm afraid I don't know what her situation is at the moment. I know he had two children, and um, I hope they are well. And I hope they realize how appreciated their father was. Yeah. All right, Tom. Okay, Ronnie. I'm exhausted. But I'm not. Until next week. <laughs> I know. I haven't quite given up yet. I still have a pile of books. Anyway, <laughs> I'll, talk, I'll talk again, Tom. Take yeah. care. Enjoy the yeah. weather. Enjoy yeah, the weather. Thank you. God bless. Bye, Tom. <laughs>